morning, everyone. The message that I'm going to bring you this morning, I have to say, is not an easy one. In fact, this one takes the record for the longest time I have ever spent in preparation. But I do think God has something important to say to us this morning. So allow me to pray before we, we begin. Father God, we thank you for this journey that you have taken us on through the book of James. We thank you for all of his wisdom, for all of the practical insights that he has given to us about what it means to live as a community of faith together. Father, speak to us this morning as we turn to this final passage. Speak to us through your word this morning. For Jesus' sake, amen. So would you turn with me to that final passage in James, James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. It did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I think if we're honest with one another, most of us would say that at best, this passage makes us a little uncomfortable. At worst, it can make us feel like a complete failure. But let me say from the outset that it was not meant to be like that. These are James's final words to the people to whom he is writing. And they're supposed to be words of encouragement. And yet they cause us a lot of grief. Why is that, that they cause us so much grief? So what I want to do is just to take you back and we'll step through this passage and try and identify the parts of it that cause us so much trouble. It starts off innocently enough. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I don't think any of us have a problem with that. It's probably our first reaction when we are suffering is to seek prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Well, with the exception of a small minority who don't like to sing at all, most of us would think that that's a great thing to do, to sing our praise to God. 
Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, that practice of anointing with oil has somewhat fallen out of favour a little bit, but aside from that, I think most of us, when we're sick, think that that's a pretty reasonable thing to do, call call for the elders and have them pray over you. But it's here, I think, that we start to run into some concerns. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And I think the reason why we start to hear alarm bells going off when we read this part of the passage is because I think for most of us, we are familiar with a time when either we ourselves or the elders of the church prayed fervently for someone who was sick and they were not raised up. They were not made well. Instead, they died. And then if that passage didn't have enough for us to think about already, James adds, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So now it would seem that somehow healing and forgiveness are tied together and that adds a whole other level of complication to this passage. Our minds also start to think about, well, if this person that was being prayed for wasn't made well, why is that? Was it that I lacked faith or was it that the sick person lacked faith? James says, therefore, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. I think if I ask for a show of hands of how many people enjoy confessing their sins to one another, they're probably not going to get a lot of hands up. (coughs) James goes on to say, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I know that for many, that leads us to conclude that perhaps we are not a righteous person because sometimes our prayers don't feel that powerful, particularly if a loved one has just died. Elijah is then offered as an example of someone just like us whose prayers were powerful and effective. But since most of us have never had a drought break or for that matter a wet bull on a flooded altar come alight, in response to our prayers, our feelings of inadequacy in prayer can be magnified at this point. And then, of course, the passage ends with this curious statement about bringing a wandering brother back when he sins. And most of us tend to just ignore this part of the passage because we get so tied up in the part about prayer and wondering about all the hows and whys of that part of the passage that we really don't even get to this part of the passage. So I think you can see why this passage can be so problematic for us. There are a lot of issues in there to be addressed. And I had three attempts at writing this message. I started at 9 o'clock one morning and by 2.30 I deleted my three attempts and was still staring at a blank screen. Twelve months ago, that would have probably sent me into a mild panic. Um, 
But over 12 months, I have learned that if a message is going nowhere for me, it probably means that I'm trying to force it in a direction that it really shouldn't be going. And I've learned over time that the solution to that is to sit and wait. And so that's what I did. And the next morning, I took this issue with me to prayer. And as I sat there out in the bush, I could feel God speak to my soul and say, go back to the beginning. And I have to confess that sometimes I'm a little bit thick and uh, God is used to that, fortunately, with me. But I pointed out to him that I was at the beginning. See, it says the prayer of faith. That is the beginning of the passage. He kept saying, go back to the beginning. So eventually, more out of frustration than anything, I decided to um, go back to what was before that part of the passage. And that is, of course, the passage that Pastor Glenn addressed last week about patience in suffering. And as I read it, some little lights went on inside my head. And I realised that if you start here, this here kind of becomes irrelevant. And if you take that away, this whole bit makes a lot more sense if it's put together. What we call the prayer of faith, and that's a title which has just been added in there by um, publishers of um, English versions of the Bible to help us with our reading. But what we call the prayer of faith is not a standalone teaching on prayer, nor is it a standalone teaching on healing. What it is, is the second half of the exhortation from James to be patient in suffering. James is showing his readers what it looks like to be patient in the face of suffering. He's showing them what the hallmark of a community patiently suffering together looks like. The distinguishing feature of that community, the thing that is going to set them apart from the world around them, the thing that will enable them to endure, says James, is prayer. And so by this stage, I'm quite excited and happy that I now have a direction with where I'm going about this message and I'm getting ready to pack up and go home. And again, I hear, go back to the beginning. And so I spent about the next 20 minutes pondering, where's the beginning? Is that Genesis? Is that the beginning of the New Testament? Is that the beginning of Jesus' ministry? I don't know. And eventually I was starting to get really cold because it was really early in the morning and I was sweaty and wet from having run there. And so I figured, well, I don't know. I'll just read the whole passage, the whole book of James, refresh my mind and go home and start working on this message. And as I started reading James chapter 1, some more little lights started to go on in, in my head. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I thought, that sounds familiar. That sounds a lot like this over here. So I kept reading. And James urges those lacking wisdom to ask God for it, which sounded to me a lot like prayer. And then he urges them to believe and not doubt when they pray, which sounds to me a lot like a prayer offered in faith. 
And all of a sudden I knew why going back to the beginning is so important. Because here is a man, James, who's written a letter to instruct and encourage Jewish background believers who've been scattered and who are suffering and struggling. And he's trying to teach them how to live together in this new community of faith. And he's written them a letter hasn't given them individual blocks of text for them to theologically dissect. He's written them a letter to be read as a whole letter. And in his letter, he has five chapters. Well, we've made them into five chapters. And the best part of two of those chapters, he devotes to perseverance through trials and temptation, otherwise known as suffering, and to prayer. And those chapters are the first part of the first chapter and the last part of the last chapter. So James chapter 1 and James chapter 5. And they stand like two bookends to everything else that comes in between. And so similar are they that they almost have identical um, verses within them. So if you look at James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. That comes in the middle of chapter 1. In the middle of chapter 5, you find, we consider blessed those who have persevered. James 5:11. And in between comes all of these things that we've been talking about over the last 10 or 12 weeks. Doing what the word says, avoiding favoritism, showing your faith by your deeds, taming the tongue, heavenly wisdom, submitting to God, godly planning, and just treatment of the poor. How is any of this attainable, particularly in the context of the trials that they were going through? It is, says James, by prayer. That, says James, will enable this little community to endure. It will be the glue that will hold them together and it will be the hallmark, the distinguishing feature of their faith in action. So with that said, and after what would have to be my most long-winded introduction ever, we're going to move on to the passage itself. And I promise it won't be anywhere near as long-winded because I think once you've got the big picture, all of the details fall into place um, quite a bit easier. So James says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is any of you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Which by my way of thinking is just another way of saying pray. Because is that not what a song of praise is? It's a prayer of worship to God. What James is saying is quite simply that whatever the circumstances of life, the whole breadth of them, the correct response is prayer. He then moves on and says, Is any one of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And it's here where I think this passage can start to tie us up in knots if we lose sight of that big picture that we talked about. Because if we look at this passage in isolation... All of us can turn 
in our minds to those instances where we have prayed earnestly for people or we have called the elders and got them to pray for people who we know are sick and they've died in spite of the prayers. And when I think back over the years in this church, I can think of many people struggling with serious illnesses for whom we prayed for healing earnestly for many years. Some of them were healed, but many of them were not. They died, and some of them died very young. And so given the infallibility of the word of God, our human minds, faced with that situation, are left with one option. Somebody's faith was lacking. Was it the prayer or the person being prayed for? And I think that's a very unhelpful um, way to think about this passage. I've heard speakers present this passage on numerous occasions as a call to greater faith. If someone's not being healed, it must be because more faith is needed. And if we can garner up enough faith, then we'll get the outcome that we want. But then consider the example of the Apostle Paul. We're told that three times he prayed for the thorn in his flesh, as he calls it, to be removed. And it wasn't. Now assuming, and it's not definite, but assuming that that was a physical complaint, who among us is going to say that the Apostle Paul was lacking in faith? Or did Martha and Mary lack faith when their brother Lazarus became sick and then died? Was their faith weak? <coughs> or for an example that very closely mirrors this passage, what about King David? who confessed his sins to the prophet Nathan when they were pointed out to him and then fell on the floor fasting and praying for six days that his infant son, who was very ill, would be healed. On the seventh day, his infant son died. Did King David lack faith? I've also heard and read all sorts of convoluted explanations for this part of the passage in an attempt to try and get over the fact that it says that the sick person will be made well. In death, a person is made new, some say. So James is speaking metaphorically. The person is raised up in their death. Or some would say this passage is about the gifts of healings. And so the gift was present when this person was healed, but that gift was removed over here when this person was not healed. Or perhaps the prayer of faith itself is a gift from God about some sort of supernatural assurance that this person will be healed. And only when you have that supernatural assurance then will the healing come. And you can go round and round and round in circles trying to justify why the Bible says that in response to the prayer offered in faith, the sick person will be made well. And yet we know from our own personal experience that in the majority of instances, this doesn't happen. And so I want to offer you an alternative point of view this morning. And from the outset, I will admit to you that it is a minority point of view at this stage. But I think it is an interpretation that is gaining momentum in the literature. And we'll begin by looking at a couple of the key words used 
in this part of the passage. And the first of those is this word, sick. And it occurs twice in the passage in verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. In English, there's one word, sick. But in Greek, there are two, asthenai and kamnota. And we're going to have a look at both of these words separately. The difficulty being for translation people that both of these words have multiple meanings. And the meaning that you assign to them can completely change the way you read this passage. So we'll look at this first word, asthenai. In the Gospels, it always means physical sickness. And I've given you an example up there from John 11, verse 3, talking about Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. It's talking about him being physically unwell. But everywhere else in the New Testament, outside of the Gospels, including all of Paul's letters, the predominant use of this word is not physical sickness. It refers to a spiritual weakness or a moral failing. And I've given you a whole lot of examples there, some from Paul's letters, some from elsewhere. You can read them uh, for yourself. Now, you could argue that James, being the brother of Jesus, would be most likely to use the word in the way that Jesus did, referring to a physical sickness. But I think you could equally argue that James, being a co-worker with Paul, might choose to use the word in the way that it was being used at the time among the people and the way that Paul was using it to refer to a spiritual or moral weakness. And since we only have this letter from James preserved, we don't have anything else to go to um, for us to compare other possible uses by this author. The second word, which is used uh, to translate to the English word sick, is this word camnonta. And it's only used one other place in the New Testament, and there it refers to a spiritual struggle. Hebrews 12 Three, I've given you there. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. It's not saying that Jesus endured hostility so that we wouldn't get physically ill. It's saying so that we wouldn't die with our sins. This word is also used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament passage of Job. It's a Septuagint. Job 10.1 translates in English to, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free reign to my complaint. Now the direct word-for-word -word translation of that first part, I loathe my very life, is fatigued the soul of mine. And that word fatigued is kamnonta. And why I think it is interesting that this is included here is because Job, if you'll remember, was the example given last week when Pastor Glenn spoke to us of perseverance in suffering. So Job is raised up and held up as an example of perseverance in suffering. So it might make sense that this same word that refers to Job is used in the second part of this passage by James. 
The other word that's important here is the word which translates in the NIV to make well or in the English Standard Version to save. Sozai. So which one is correct, make well or save? James uses the word four other times in his little letter and always it refers to spiritual salvation. So I'll give you a few examples. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So James's predominant use of this word save is referring to being saved from your sins. Elsewhere, mainly in the Gospels, the predominant use is also of spiritual salvation. So if we trace this line of thinking through, verses 14 and 15 might be able to be read like this. Is anyone among you weak? With that definition of weakness being struggling morally or spiritually. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is weak and the Lord will raise him up. Now please don't imagine, by the way, that I am presenting this passage today that I'm suggesting that we shouldn't pray for healing from physical sickness. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm just not sure that this is the proof text for that kind of healing that it has always been made out to be. So on the grounds of the key words that are used in this passage, I would lean towards an interpretation of spiritual suffering or weakness rather than physical sickness in this passage. Although I will admit you could argue it both ways. There's a fairly strong argument for both cases, but I think slightly tipped in the balance of spiritual weakness. This rendering of the passage is also by far the simplest. I think to make the passage work and make sense, if you're talking about physical sickness, you have to jump through a lot of very complex theological hoops to explain that part of the passage where it says the prayer of faith will make the sick person well. And most of the arguments that I've read, I have to say, do very little to convince me. So on the grounds of simplicity, I think the balance is tipped towards spiritual weakness. But what I'm most surprised about, having read a lot of literature on this passage, is the lack of weight given to context, because I think context is very important in this particular case. So we've mentioned already the wider context of this passage, those two bookends, and also the way in which the book is talking as a whole about persevering through trials and giving us instructions for Christian living. So I'm not going to spend any more time on the wider context but we're going to look briefly at the immediate and the near context. 
So the immediate, the, the verses that come immediately after those two verses that we've discussed in detail talk about sin, forgiveness and confession. And if he's talking about spiritual weakness, those verses make perfect sense. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If James is talking about physical healing from sickness, adding confession of sins to this equation makes an already complicated passage even more complicated because we know that while sometimes Jesus said when he was healing people, your sins are forgiven, mostly he did not. And certainly he didn't require confession of sins prior to healing. And likewise, we have at least one example recorded from Jesus' healing ministry in John 9 verse 2, where the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who has sinned, this man or his parents, that he is in this state, born blind. And Jesus said, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. If James is talking about salvation, of course, confession of sins is necessary. John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what James might appear to be saying here at the end of his letter is, if, having read this letter, you've been convicted of your own weakness, call for those who are stronger in the faith than you are and have them pray for you. Confess your sins and you will be forgiven. And then if we go a little bit wider to the near context, we saw earlier that this passage that we're speaking of today forms the logical conclusion to the one that Pastor Glenn spoke from last week about patience in suffering. What's likely to happen when Christians suffer? We're told last week they might be prone to grumbling. They might be tempted to sin. And we saw earlier when we were in chapter 1 that they might be tempted to walk away from their faith altogether. In all of those situations, the exhortation to the weak is to call the elders together, have them pray, together with the confession of sins, and all of that makes perfect sense if what James is talking about is healing from spiritual weakness. Then we have the account of Elijah being put forward as an example in prayer. And I find this account fascinating because if I was writing a letter about physical healing, there's an example from the life of Elijah that I would use in much greater preference to this one. Because we have that example of Elijah with the son of the widow from Zarephath. And he prayed over that boy and he was well, not only healed, he was raised uh, from death. And if I was presenting a passage on physical healing from sickness, that's the example from Elijah's life that I would use, but not James. James chooses an example from 
Elijah's life which speaks of his patience in suffering. So Elijah ministered in the time of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel and they were evil. We're told Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And one of those things that he and his wife did was to systematically set out to take down each of the prophets and kill them. And so Elijah was staring into the face of evil with his dealings with these two. And it was during this time of great suffering and persecution that Elijah, knowing the will of God, prayed that it might not rain for three years. And God withheld the rain and there was drought and there was famine. And then after he defeated the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, Elijah prayed for rain to end the famine and God sent rain. For Elijah, his faith in action meant patient endurance through suffering in prayer. Prayer was the distinguishing feature of his faith put into action. By it he not only endured, but he flourished in spite of all the evil around him. Elijah, we are told, was a man with a nature just like ours. And so this passage is a great encouragement to us, and it is an encouragement to me because I have no doubt that this church can likewise flourish if we too will make prayer our distinguishing feature. James concludes this passage and indeed the whole letter with verses 19 and 20 which speak of bringing back a brother who has wandered from the faith. <coughs> My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James was speaking about physical healing. That is a very curious way to end that passage. If he's speaking about spiritual suffering, it makes perfect sense. And you can hear the pastoral heart of James in what he's saying there. It's as if he's saying, I know you are suffering and I know some of you will be tempted to sin or to turn your back on God and I've written you a blueprint for how to live together as a community of faith in the face of suffering. Finally here, I've shown you how to endure, how all of this will be possible and it is by prayer. When you are in trouble, pray. When you are happy, pray. When you are struggling spiritually, call someone who is stronger than you in the faith to come, confess your sins and have them pray for you. Prayer is your lifeline. This is what will hold this struggling, fledgling community together. This will be the distinguishing feature of your faith in action. But should any one of you wander or succumb to temptation, go, bring them back, turn them from the error of their ways. It is the perfect way to end the passage. So it leaves us with one question. What exactly is this prayer of faith? 
And I would suggest to you that it has very little to do with garnering up enough faith to convince God to grant you your request. Nor is it something that only the elders of the church can attain. I would suggest that the prayer of faith is more a prayer of submission to God, born out of confession of sin and an earnest desire to live in a right relationship with him. That is the kind of prayer that will truly make a person well. And that is the kind of prayer that will hold a community of believers together. I'm going to ask the musicians if they would like to come up now and lead us in our final song uh, for this morning. And then I want to lead you in a, a short reflective time after they've done that. So I'll ask them to stay on the stage while we, we have that time.
of James and we've seen the way in which he's encouraged us to live as a community of faith and to support one another um, through all of the, the trials of life. We've talked about all of those practical aspects of living together and now we come to this concluding passage which speaks of prayer and of praying for one another. And many people will ask for prayer when they have a physical problem. It seems to be a very natural reaction to do. But very few people will ask for prayer when they are struggling spiritually. It seems to be something that we are scared of doing, scared of admitting to one another that we're struggling in this way. And it shouldn't be. James says it shouldn't be. So... So whether your weakness is physical or spiritual, can I encourage you today, if you would like prayer, to seek that prayer. Pastor Bruce and myself and maybe a few others, if, if we need them, will be down the front at the conclusion of the service and we will be available to pray with any that would like prayer today, regardless of what the reason is for that prayer. So I know it's very tempting because there's going to be food and there'll be lunch, but can I encourage you that if you would like someone to pray with you, please come down the front, uh, just in the corner over here, and someone will be available to pray with you. And now from Romans 15, 5 to 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 